It says this, Matthew 26, verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him immediately. He went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Ravi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they laid hands on Jesus and took him, and suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant on the high priest of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? And that our Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of this time, for every minute that you grant us here to be able to be in your word and to seek to be transformed. God, I don't know uh, with everyone here that whether how familiar they are with your word, how familiar they are with English, how familiar they are, God, with the culture and with uh, what it really means to follow you as your scripture makes clear. But I do know this, God, that you are here. Father, you tell us you dwell upon the praises of your people. Jesus, you said that when two or more are gathered in your name, there you are in our midst. Holy Spirit, we know you're here because you dwell within every believer. So clearly, Lord, here we are in a room with the Trinity here to work upon us and in us and through us. So God, I pray that you would overcome every language, every cultural Every barrier of knowledge or lack thereof. Overcome, Lord, areas of pride or of reluctance. Oh God, please engage us today. Draw us and captivate us that every one of us would be radically, permanently, powerfully impacted in a way that we will never be the same. And God, if there be any who have yet to say yes to you, any that have yet to accept the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross as payment for their sins and the declaration of His Lordship as the result of His resurrection. God, I pray today that Your Holy Spirit would convict, convince, do Your work, Lord. Let every word be perfectly spoken. And God, redeem every second, I pray. So have Your way now. We commit ourselves to You, Lord, in every moment now. Please, Lord, immerse me in your Holy Spirit that they would see you. Come upon me that you would use me, make me your mouthpiece. And God, do your work now, we pray. In Jesus' name, may we have so much fun in your word and color in the black and white, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Not some man with a mic, regardless of how many letters before or after his name or whatever the case is. Our context, of course, is Jesus' arrest. He told us just a handful of verses back. Matthew tells us in verse 39 that Jesus fell on his face. And as he fell on his face, he prayed, Father, if it is possible, well then let this cut pass from before me. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we see the perfect example of of your will, of surrender and of submission, where there are definitely conflicting wills, and yet in the end of it all, who has the final say? And then he comes a second time, prays the same, and a third time, and in between each of those, he finds Peter sleeping. As he finds Peter sleeping, his response is interesting. He says, what? 
is how he starts at the first of the three. Now, Peter had just declared that he was willing to die with him tonight, that he would never betray him, he would never fall away. And he was, you can see just Peter telling you, look it, you've got me, I'm rocky, I'm the strong man, there's no way I'm going to fail you. And I wonder what it would be like for Jesus to look and see him. And he's like, look it, I need you guys awake, I need you watching, and I need you praying. Jesus falls on his face, sweats like drops of blood, strengthened by an angel, comes back and finds them sleeping. And I look at that and there's something inside of me that goes, now, wow, you know, how can I ever be expected to stand with Jesus in challenge if I can't kneel with him in prayer? And, and, and that's what we see here with Peter. And in that then, as is the case, Jesus then, after the third time, looks at them and they've gone from sort of nodding off to sleeping to heavy sleep is sort of the, the digression. And then at the end of that, Jesus wakes them up and he says then in verse 46, our verse prior, he says, get up. Literally, rise, let us get going, seeing my betrayer is at hand. In verse 47, he says then, and as, or and, while he was speaking, and then we have this single word that is often looked past, the word behold. Now, the word behold is the key to all of this in many ways. The word in the Greek is the word idu. Idu in the simplest sense means like, observe this, like, yo, check it out. But understand, this word, when written in context like this, says that it's something that should elicit a wow. There's something about this behold that you realize causes the person who is observing, the observer, to look and go, wow. Throughout Scripture, God has used this term. And David would say in Psalm 139, verse 8, If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. And you get the idea that David's like, there's so many places in the whole context with David. He's going, where could I possibly run from you? I mean, I could try doing this or that. I could run to the farthest places of the earth. And David kind of goes, you know, there's just no place I can outrun you. But if there's any place that is the most godless place that exists anywhere, you would think it'd be hell. And what David says is, I could even go to hell. And he goes, I just can't get away from you anywhere. But he doesn't say it like, wow, that's a terrible thing. The whole Psalm 139 is a celebration of his intimacy with God. You've searched me and you know me, you know my rising up and my lying down and my thoughts from afar. There's nothing I can do or think or say in any manner that you don't know ahead of time. You get all of that. And so when David says this, get the idea of a guy that constantly seems to be in a state of wonder. When I consider the work of your fingers, the sun and the moon and the stars that you have made, there's a wow there. You know, there's the, oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But when he says, in all of those things, he kind of goes, this is the normal wonder. But he goes, you know, if I just, if I tried to run to hell, he's like, you're even there. And you can see David going, Matthew is a person who's riddled with this wow as he looks at it. Back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, it's like there was a Joseph who was contemplating a situation with a girl he was betrothed to that turns out to be pregnant. That's not normal, uh, certainly in that culture. And it says, and then an angel appeared. But it doesn't just say an angel appeared. He gets the idea, he goes, no, behold, an angel appeared. In other words, it isn't like every day an angel shows up at someone's house. I don't know about you, but he doesn't, doesn't, I don't get that. I don't get sort of normal angel visits. But you get the idea, this guy was there contemplating, what am I going to do with this fiancé of mine, if you will, this betrothed? He goes, and an angel showed up. Wow! And I love the fact that what Matthew is trying to elicit in us is something that in the European culture we try to avoid. We try to avoid being awestruck by anything, unless it's, of course, you know, some form of superstar, so to speak, that people love to be in wonder of. You know, it's sort of like everyone could be, you know, like, eh, it's like not important until a footballer or like Benedict Cumberbatch walks by. And then it's amazing how someone could become so ignited that just a moment ago was slightly above being in a coma. And the reason I say that is what Matthew wants us to get out of this is there are things that God is constantly doing that make you just go, wow, if you were actually willing to. The next chapter, he says, you know, then there were wise men who showed up. Wow! Chapter 2, verse 1. And the idea was, there's this baby laid in a feeding trough outside. And the wealthiest men in the world seem to show up there at this little baby. Wow! 
And he goes, and not only that, eight verses later, it's you know how they got there? There was a star. And it means like people go, well, there were these three stars that converged, and as they converged, it sort of showed. It's like it says that the star moved. That's what made Matthew go, wow. It was like they were following the star. The reason they were following the star is, strangely enough, it was moving. Now, today, that's not that weird. Have you ever done that? You go, wow, check out how bright that star is. And then you realize it's a plane. You're like, wow, it's blinking and moving through the sky. Well, in those days, that kind of thing just didn't happen. And Matthew goes, wow, star. Jesus being baptized, the first 3.16 in the New Testament, Matthew 3.16. Jesus is baptized. He comes out of the, if you will, he rises up in the water. And it says, behold, the heavens were open. He's like, did you see that? The heavens were open and the Holy Spirit, not as a dove, but like a dove, comes down. That means God chose to form in his Holy Spirit. And it was like a dove and it landed and it stayed upon him. And he goes, man, you should have seen that. Wow. Then he talks about the ministry of Jesus, Matthew 8, 2. And he says, you know, there was Jesus, perfect and holy and pure. And a leper came to him. Of all people, a leper came to him. And you can't get filthier and dirtier and more decrepit in that society than a leper. It would be like the 80s and somebody just inches away from dying from AIDS. It was confused. People didn't know what to do with it. They were freaked out and, and totally frightened. And in all of that, he's like, this guy showed up and he walked straight to Jesus. And he goes, Wow. And then strangely enough, in the same chapter, the Jewish community, well, Jesus had been in 832, begged him to depart from the region. Well, actually, we'll see that on the other side of the gatherings. And they begged Jesus to leave. And you go, wow, a leper could come to him, but a whole city would beg him to leave when he actually delivers a man from the powers of hell. It was a, a paralytic that was brought to him in Matthew 9.2. And he goes, wow. And then in 9.10, he's like, you know what? I sat in 8. And he goes, these tax collectors sat with Jesus. And I remind you, Matthew was a tax collector. And I could see Matthew looking around the table at guys that he knew were ripping people off before they met Jesus. Guys that were total con artists, all gathered around. And it's like ex-con artists for Jesus, all sitting around the table. And, and Matthew kind of looks around and he goes, wow. And you kind of get the idea. Matthew's like, there is nobody that Jesus won't accept if they come to him. As long as they're not only willing, because Jesus will take you as you are, but you've got to be willing to take him for who he is. And he goes, you know what's strange? Just eight verses after, all these tax collectors were sitting around and supping with Jesus. There was a ruler, a religious ruler, who came and came down and he worshipped Jesus and he begged him for help. And then another 14 verses after that, it was a mutant demon-possessed man. He goes, and then I was sitting in church, synagogue, if you will, in the day. Matthew 12, verse 10. He goes, there was a guy with a withered hand. Do you realize that if a person were to have such a thing, they shouldn't have been allowed at least into the temple, and often the synagogues were considered extensions of that. He goes, this guy was in there. And then you should have seen what Jesus did. Wow. Then we went up a hill, five chapters later, Matthew 17. And there was Jesus. And then there was Moses. And then there was Elijah. Wow. I look at all of this. And I have to ask myself, if the whole idea of this is behold, wow, do I still have a beholdable spirit? I mean, if God were going to do something amazing right here today, would I even be ready to receive that? Would I even be in the place today where I would actually go... Yeah. Because I need to have that. And what's clear is these men that seemed to be simpletons that were pulled out to change the world were men that had beholdable spirits. And I realize that it'll be those beholdable moments that become the topics of conversation when we sit back later in life if the Lord tarries and go, remember when? Remember when that girl was carried in Nigeria? leg completely saturated in gangrene and God would totally deliver her and heal her? Remember when a French atheist came in hating God, suspicious of everyone, and what God did with him? Wow. Remember the angry, bitter, confused people? 
that lived their whole life fearful of the next conspiracy? Completely saturated in their insecurities? That found Jesus and got anchored? Wow. Isn't that what life is like? I get why it says in the book of Acts that the Lord worked unusual miracles. And I'm like, wait a minute. Isn't a miracle, by virtue of what it is, unusual? But you get the idea that there was some place where the, some miracles had become so commonplace, they were not unusual miracles anymore. They were just kind of the ordinary miracles. And that's sometimes what happens at church. We get so used to this that it's sort of ordinary miracles. God changing people, transforming people, turning drug addicts into kind and loving people, angry, bitter people into just genuine, loving people. And you realize you still should be like, wow. And I'm going to ask you something. If we were just to take a moment before we even went any farther, could you think of any beholdable moments that God really made you go, wow, recently? And let's face it, sometimes it could be as simple as a beautiful sunset. Last night I had one of those. Sun was setting. We've gotten, we've moved to Greenwich, and we've got this beautiful place that looks. It's tiny, but it's beautiful, and it looks out um, over the river. The sun sets in such a way that it turns the sky all kinds of colors of peach and amber, and we kind of just watch that. And I, I'm like, I turned off the light in the room just so that I could just see that and kind of, kind of bathe in that light for a moment. I'm just like, wow, so beautiful. That's nothing compared to what I've seen and that God's done in people. Some of you that I've watched as of recent. And I realize that there's going to be a day when we'll look back and remember when there were a handful of people rubbing their hands together to keep themselves from dying of hypothermia, sitting in a room, studying the Bible. And it was simple. It was simple because it is simple. Following Jesus is simple. Ministry is simple. I get why after Jesus was resurrected, he brought them back to Galilee, to the mountain he had prepared for them. Because back in Matthew, in chapter 4, before Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount, people just brought all kinds of sick people and crazy people to Jesus. It really didn't matter what your issue was, because they just had this mindset, if I could bring them to Jesus, he could fix them. And Jesus, I could see him after he's resurrected. He goes, now that you've walked with me for three and a half years, now that you've seen my death and resurrection, now that all of this is in light of all of that, you need to recognize ministry hasn't gotten any more complicated. If you can get them to me, I can fix them. You don't have to be an expert in their issue to be an expert in their cure. Forget it. But it's important to note that not all beholdable moments are good ones. Let's be honest. There are beautiful beholdables. Those moments I look back and I'm still just amazed. But then there are other moments, to be honest, I look back and I feel a great deal of pain that also made me go, wow. And that's what he's writing here. When Matthew was writing, and while Jesus was still speaking, behold, he's not saying behold because this is a good wow. Not every wow, if you will, is a beautiful beholdable. Some of them are bereaving beholdables, and that's what this is here. He says, while Jesus was still saying, my betrayer's at hand, he says, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one to seize him. And I realized what wowed Matthew here in the simplest sense was a who and a how. The who was this. And notice the way he writes it. Judas. He doesn't have to tell you which Judas because we all knew. He writes him as one of the twelve. And I kind of get the idea that this is Judas writing from a, I'm sorry, this is Matthew writing from a broken heart. It's like, this was one of us. This was one of the people like for three years, three and a half years, we supped together. We saw Jesus do amazing things together. We were sent together. We, I mean, we saw and watched and observed and, and chronicled the most unbelievable but believable miracles. 
and, and there was just nothing. There was no such thing as impossible walking with Jesus for years. And though we saw and we supped and we were sent together, you stabbed. But you didn't stab me first. You stabbed Jesus in the heart. I can just see Matthew looking and Jesus going, my betrayer. And the last thing that Matthew expects to find is Judas Iscariot. And he looks up and he goes, Judas? Wow. I don't get it. How could you of all people, the miracles we've seen together for years, we've worked side by side, and for years I had no idea that your heart really wasn't here. When we sat under Jesus' teachings together, he sent us out and we watched God do crazy cool things. We were the crew together. We were tight. I mean, there are some people I could go, yeah, maybe that guy's a, a betrayer. Maybe that girl's a betrayer. But Judas, you? Wow. But it wasn't just that Judas came. It's who Judas came with. Judas came, in essence, with the SWAT team of the day. And they look at this and they realize one of us now is one of them. And I could never saw it coming. It was like I blinked and all of a sudden you were in the other camp. And I don't get it. I don't get it. Wow. I could never have guessed this. That for years you've had this betrayal in your heart. And who knew but you and God? And the whole time we just assumed you were one of us. But it wasn't just the who, it was the how. Because you see, it tells us his betrayer had given the sign, whomever I kiss, that's the one. And then he just comes up to him and he goes, Shalom, Ravi. And he kisses him just like anyone would on any other circumstance with someone they were intimate with. I mean, it's an interesting story, and it's better to tell it while Daniel's not here because it makes it more fun when he comes back in the room. But uh, Daniel's the one who gave the announcements. Uh, Daniel and, and Hugo go to France. And uh, from the story, you can, you, Hugo can probably fill you in on all of the proper details later, but the way that I understand the story as it was told to me is that Hugo was approaching people he knows cl- closely. And because he's approaching people, because Hugo's from France, that... Uh, that, you know, they kind of do the whole kind of hug and kiss kind of thing. You know, not like French kiss. I know that's what you would expect, but, I mean, you know, the kind of kiss on the cheeks on both sides because he's really familiar with these people. He's seeing old friends and family. Well, Daniel doesn't know the best of this. I mean, all he sees is this is how you greet someone. So Daniel starts to do the same thing. Well, Daniel doesn't know any of the people, so they're kind of, you know, who is this sort of Chewbacca of a fellow just trying to kind of kiss my face? So, and the whole, I mean, the funny part about it, of course, is the reason that was so weird was because this was a stranger, and strangers just don't do that. But Hugo, it wasn't weird. First of all, how could Hugo be intimidating? He's, you know, he's you know, a hobbit. But, but, also, but also just the fact that he's just kind of a lovable guy. And, and the reason I say that is, is that the intimacy that Hugo has with those people didn't make it weird at all. Because there was an intimacy time that had been developed, and an intimacy that made them feel safe for them to do that. Now, Daniel doing that, on the other hand, they... I would imagine they probably, inside if nothing else, were screaming words uh, in French. Anyways, all of that to say that when Judas comes to the person, to Jesus of all people, it is amazing how nonchalant he is about the situation. As if Jesus, in essence, were the guilty one. And I just can't help but think of Isaiah 29:13, where it says that though my people draw near to me with their lips, oh, their heart is far from me. And God's like, I know this. Look at your lip service. It doesn't mean anything to me. I see where your heart is. And he approaches Jesus more than likely like he had so many other times. And remember, Jesus is saying, Behold, my betrayer is at hand. Clearly, Peter is with an earshot of Jesus saying that, so he's close enough to watch Judas come right up to him and kiss him. And Judas has to put that mask together and go, Oh my goodness, this is who he's talking about. And the place that they did it in, was a garden that John makes really clear Jesus had often gone to pray in. This was a place he had gone regularly to pray in. So all of a sudden I realize these people I felt so safe with, I don't feel safe with anymore because 
I could never have guessed this person could become this. Or actually, might I even say, this person was already this, I just didn't know. Boy, they had me fooled. And this place that seems so safe is no longer feeling safe to me anymore because this same place that was just a place of prayer and safety is now a place of altercation and arrest. It's a place of accusation and it used to be just a place of peace. How did that happen? And it seemed to me like it happened like this. And all of a sudden, that safe place doesn't feel like a safe place anymore. And those safe people don't feel like safe people because once one person turns out like that, how do you know who the next one is? And if it could happen here, well then where couldn't it happen? And Matthew's looking at this and he's going, oh my goodness, I don't get it. Wow. How unreluctant, how intimate the betrayal kiss and at the moment where do I look do I look at me and the pain I feel because I've been in essence I've been duped I've been duped by somebody playing the role but but clearly it was just an act is that where I go because if that's the case I'm going to crumble up and die and it's a temptation because that kind of thing happens Or do I look at Jesus? Because the difference is, Jesus is really the one that's the victim. Not me. Yeah, I've been affected by this person's sin. Yeah, I've been affected by what they've done. But they did it against Jesus, not me. And here is a guy that says, you know, he's so confident and Jesus is into it. And I remind you, Jesus has already told him what you have to do, do quickly. Judas knows. Jesus knows he's the betrayer. And it tells us in John that Judas was the betrayer from the beginning. He wasn't a decent follower that got sidetracked and then fell into this. Judas always was a betrayer. He never wasn't. Even though none of us knew but Jesus. But it tells us Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. And yet Jesus obviously didn't treat him differently or we would have known. And I look at this and I think, wow. Behold this. And Matthew looks and he goes, this is a moment I'll never forget. This is a beholdable moment. This is a moment even now when I look back, I go, wow. It's like your whole reality comes falling down upon you. And you're like in some weird inception all of a sudden. Well, with that, I just want you to recognize. And, and, I, and I see this. There's this whole betrayal like of a kiss. And I want you to know that we see the same thing in Second Samuel 20, by the way, with Joab and Amasa. You can look at it for yourself. Perhaps even all the way back, he does the same thing with Abner in some sense in Second Samuel 3, where he seems so polite and so cordial, but death is on his mind and he's just so different in his heart. But I think it's important to recognize, as you know, this story is told in all four of the Gospels. In Luke 22:48, focusing on Jesus' humanity, we actually have a line that Matthew doesn't tell us that Jesus speaks. Jesus says to him, to Judas, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And I realize that Matthew's not the only person that's telling us, behold, what wowed Matthew the betrayal of Judas. What wowed Jesus? Well, I think two things in our text moving in. I think the way that Jesus, and again, this is my opinion, but I'd like you to consider it and then take a look at Scripture and decide for yourself. When Jesus found Peter sleeping, his response first was, Ma? What? That sounds like a, like a, a, a statement of, un- of unbelief, of shock. And I get the idea that the same guy that says, look, at, oh, I'm strong, I'll never fail you. You got me, I'm Rocky, Peter Petros, the rock, yo. You know, and it's like Jesus looking at him and he goes to pray and he comes and he goes, Peter, what? Are you serious? This quick? And I get the idea what, what amazed Jesus was the who there was Peter. Because Jesus knew the who of Judas. 
And he knew that Peter would, would deny him three times. He told Peter that, but you'd think at least Peter would be on his best behavior until then. And he looks and he's like, you could, almost, you could just see Jesus going, wow, I really didn't expect you to fall that quickly in an area that was so much easier. Couldn't you just watch and pray with me for the hour? But we do read, though that Jesus knew who would betray him, we don't read ever that Jesus knew how. And I get that when what, what Luke is telling us in his account. So Jesus looks and he sees this guy and he knows that Judas is ultimately going to be responsible for Jesus' arrest. He knows that much. Scripture makes that clear. But what Scripture didn't make clear was the fact that it was going to happen with a kiss. That of a closest friend, the most intimate of parties. You can almost see the tears in Jesus' eyes. He looks at Judas and he's like, Really? You felt that safe with me? Or did you just feel nothing at all? That you could come do this to get me arrested? You knew I wouldn't fight you. You knew I wouldn't pour forth vengeance on you here for that. You knew I was that approachable. And so you thought this was, this was okay? Something in your mind said this was okay? For you to come and treat me like any other day, like this was any other event in any of your life? But here's the problem. If your life is one living out betrayal, well then the next act of betrayal really isn't that huge compared to the fact you've been doing it for a while now. And when you live that kind of life, it's easy to make everyone else your enemy that looks like Jesus because you're already living, fighting him in the first place. I can just see Jesus being loud going, wow, Judas, really? You didn't just stand and say that one? But you came and you did it like I was your closest friend? Treated me like we were so close and this is what we got out of it? Wow! You get this idea in here that by this point, Jesus and Matthew share this wow in common. They're looking at it perhaps from different angles, but the same situation is causing them to go, Wow, what, really? And notice what he says in verse 50 of our text. Friend, why have you come? Stop stop pretending. Stop playing the role like somehow this is okay. Isaiah 50, written 750 years, if you will, before Jesus would be experiencing this, says, I gave my back, this is verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard, and I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. You get the idea that Jesus knew. It tells us then as a result of that, verse 51. I remind you, Peter had been sleeping. He rises up. He sees the betrayer. Matthew now aware of the betrayer as well. And it says, And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. You know what's interesting? This event takes place in all four Gospels as well. I mean, it's recorded in all four Gospels. John 19, Luke 22. And yet nobody says, behold. The fact that Peter would attack someone with a knife didn't surprise anyone. Now, the fact that Jesus would tell him, put your sword in its sheath, tells me that Peter would already been walking around with one anyways. It tells us, so you know that I'm not making up the Peter thing. In John 19.10, it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, it doesn't take a really brilliant person to know how a knife works, but unless you're kind of like a sous chef, chances are the easy point about it is, and this is not like knifing 101, the pointy part goes in first. That's usually how a knife works. 
Uh, however, on the other side of that, the fact that Peter cut off an ear, it tells me that Peter was actually not trying to stab someone. He was, in essence, trying to fillet them like you would a fish. But he was a fisherman and made sense to me. The fact that it was his right ear is a little strange considering, uh, let's just assume, now we're, picking, we're making some assumptions here, that Peter's right-handed because most people are, not everyone. The greatest people are left-handed. I'm just talking about him. So. Anyways, but, but if Peter were right-handed and he were going to go, come here for a second, one of you. Let's see, let me use Bruno. Come here, Bruno. Don't worry, I don't have a knife, so we only have to mime this, so you're safe for the moment. Now, let's say that, that Peter is facing this guy. If Peter is facing this guy and he's got a knife in his hand and he's going to cut off which ear again? His right ear. Do you think that's going to be an easy task if he's a right-handed guy? He's going to be like, Ugh! or would it be more likely that he would have done it this way where it would have been a very simple shot? Now, it doesn't tell us, but the easiest, the odds are more likely that he got the poor guy from behind. Cut off his ear. Thanks, Brian. Now, here's the weird part about it. I do love the fact that he could have cut off a lot of things, a finger, a toe, but I love the fact that he cut off an ear because it seems to me that one of Peter's biggest problems are those. That Peter's got a really good working mouth, but he's got very poorly working ears. But the most amazing part to me is actually this guy, Malchus. And I really would love, if he gave his life to Jesus ultimately, and we get to sit in heaven and talk, I'd love to know how this worked. Not that you're getting cut off and then Jesus putting it back on him. But if somebody cuts off your ear and then Jesus sticks it back on, do you then arrest him? You're like, oh, okay. Well, where were we? Oh, yeah, you're under arrest. Do you really still go there? What part of your life doesn't go at that point? Uh, maybe I should really rethink this. I mean, just a moment ago I was Van Gogh. And now look at me. I'm actually got, I've got stereo again. This is a weird thing. But nonetheless... Peter jumps into this situation and he, in essence, what he's trying to do, and think about this, he's trying to help God. Jesus, God in the flesh is there, he's getting arrested, and Peter, trying to be a friend, does what a friend does, tries to defend his friend. The problem is the guy he's trying to defend is God. And if you have to defend your God, I mean, if that's what you're required to do, you have to defend him, you've got the wrong one. If you have to carry him, put him back in his place, set him back on his place, make sure he doesn't fall over, keep him maintained, paint him, you know, cover him in silver so that the, you know, the elements don't get to him. You've got the wrong God. If you have to spend all your time protecting your God, you've got the wrong one because my God spends all his time protecting me. And it's interesting, as I look at this from the perspective of beholding it, I realize that throughout Scripture, the moment you try to help God, you start robbing yourself of beholdable moments. That's the weird part. Some of you are familiar all the way back in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, there was a brother who was already promised the birthright and the blessing. God had already promised him that, but instead he dresses up like his brother to try to, in essence, con his dad, this poor blind dad, out of it. God had already promised him that. Now, ultimately, he winds up getting those things, but he never can tell people how God did it because he was too busy doing it himself. He's too busy trying to help God out. And there's so many times where God's made a promise and he's telling you, this is how I'm going to do it. And you try to tell God, well, you know, all right, God, but, but you've got to do it by Friday. And God doesn't do it by Friday. And then the next thing you know, you're like, well, maybe what the problem is, is that I need to, to help God out. Give him a little nudge. I have to expedite. Now, I'm not talking about, look at if God wants to give you a job, it might be wise to actually, I don't know, fill out some applications, send out your CV. That makes sense to me. But when we start talking about a promise God's laid and then somewhere in all of that, until he tells you to do something, it is amazing how often we are like, well, I've been waiting a long time. Something really needs to happen here. Well, God never needs my help. And he never needs yours. He will use it, but the reason he uses it so is that we have the blessing of being personally involved in a beholdable moment. There's the amazing part. But it's not because of our own strength. And Jesus makes a comment that I often use when I used to teach self-defense. Jesus says in this simple sense in verse 52, whatever you use can and will be used against you. The moment you have any form of weapon on you, the moment it gets out of your hands, it's going to be used against you. And Jesus says, look, at if you're going to live by the sword, you're going to die by it. That's the simple truth of it. It's interesting. James gets that same concept in 2.13 when he says justice without mercy. He says, if you want to judge without mercy, judgment without mercy will be shown to you. Because whatever you use on others, it will be used against you. 
He goes, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, with that in mind, then Jesus says this. Matthew focusing, by the way, on Jesus being king over all. He says in verse 53, do you not think, Peter, there's our problem, isn't it? Peter, you are good at acting. You're good at performing. But didn't you think? Didn't you think for a moment that if I really needed someone's help, I could call down, my father could supply me with more than 12 legions of angels. So you really think, with all due respect, that you'd be my first choice? The moment we really think that we're doing God a favor by offering ourselves to him, other than the fact that what he really wants is our fellowship, we realize the problem. Now look at quick story, and we're almost done now. In 2 Kings 19, we are at roughly about 700 B.C., the same time as Isaiah writing, by the way. The king, by the way, the, the nation of Israel has divided. There's been a civil war. Northern ten tribes have called themselves Israel. The southern two tribes have called themselves Judah. It's from the word Judah, by the way, that the people call themselves Jews today. It's the short of that, by the way. The kings of the north, there were, there were 19 of them, not a single decent king among them. They were all wicked, horrible, anti-God people. On the, on the south, on the other hand, there were 20 kings, and at least eight of them were decent kings in one way or another. And one of the best was a guy named Hezekiah. Hezekiah was not without battles or challenges, though. And in chapter 19, it's a really weird time because the northern kingdom now is actually being taken captive by the most cruel nation in the history up to that point, in the history of mankind. They were known for ripping pregnant women, pardon me for saying, open and showing them their babies before they both died. They were known for skinning people alive so they could actually see their skin. They were trying to turn it into an art form so they could see all of their skin before they died. There were many, many other things. They would actually put a pole in the ground and then tie your hands behind your back and put you with the pole under your chin and then let the gravity do the work of a slow way of impaling you through your head. Now, forgive me for being so graphic. The point is, they were obviously pretty horrible, wicked people. And they were also, for 150 years, invincible. They had never lost a battle in 150 years. Now, they were at one point almost in total ruins until God actually sent a prophet over roughly 200 years prior. We're familiar with that story because the capital of Assyria is Nineveh. So perhaps you're familiar with who the prophet would be and you could see why he wasn't so happy about going there. Now here they are, a mighty force. 150, 200 years later, now they've made them way over and they've taken the entire northern kingdom captive. They've seen now your ten tribes, in other words, your brothers taken captive and now Hezekiah watches this and now they start setting their sights on the south. And Hezekiah is quite nervous, as you might imagine. Hezekiah turns to the Lord and he asks, and he says, go get Isaiah and tell him, man, what's up with this? God, is he, God will you help us? Please, we're seeking you. Ultimately, they send a letter. Uh, the king of Sennacherib of Assyria comes. You know, it says, you know, you guys are toast. You guys are done. And he takes that letter and he throws it. He goes into the temple and he lays it before God. And he's like, God, I really don't know what to do. There's no way we can handle this. They've got like 185,000 men. We don't have anything like that. We are outmanned. We're outgunned. They've got tanks, in other words. It's like they've got nuclear weapons and we've got pea shooters. We don't even stand a chance. And God says, well, you cried out to me. You'll see. Now, the men who actually were sent there, Rosh Shecha and so forth, that actually stood to taunt Israel or Judah, it said, you know, every other God so far, where are they? No one's ever been able to defeat us. So what makes you think your God's going to be any better? And God's like, that's what I was looking for. So while they're praying, one angel, we don't even read his name. It isn't like his name is like Fabio or Arnold, the, the angel. You know, we just read him as an angel goes down there and wipes out 185,000 soldiers. That's one angel. Now, if a legion were about 6,000 angels, and Jesus says, at any moment at my disposal, I could get at least 12 legions of angels, just with a quick sending my bat signal up kind of thing. Do you really think, Peter, that you're going to be my first choice, my first go-to? 
At this point, of course, Peter's clearly seen himself as a failure. He's really, he's blown it. But Jesus says this, if you will. But you know, this is what the scripture promised. The scripture needs to be fulfilled. And because scripture needs to be fulfilled, I already expected this. And then Jesus says in our last two verses, And then our Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber? With swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you didn't seize me. But all of this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all of them forsook him and fled, just like Jesus promised. Jesus, in the countertext in Luke 22, starting at about 52, it tells us the same thing. And in verse 53, he says, I sat daily in your temple, but you didn't try to seize me, but this is your hour in the power of darkness. To conclude this, I'd like you to consider this. The power of darkness must unleash at Jesus everything in its arsenal. Every mortar of abuse, violence, lust, jealousy, pride, selfishness, every sin, every bullet of self-exaltation, mockery. Darkness will have to be completely depleting itself, dry in its artillery. Everything that it has to offer is going to be thrown at Jesus. Everything has to, with the final bullet ending at the cross. That's the power of darkness, and Jesus has to take it all if he's going to pay for the sins of all of us. But the prophets also told us that Jesus will take all of that. It will kill him, but he will arise victoriously, stare in the face of them and go, is that all you got? That's it? And if everything is depleted and the armory is empty, then there's nothing left. And Jesus took it all at the cross and he says, that's why it has to be just as the prophet said. Because the prophet said, I would take all of this. Because it tells us in Isaiah 53 that the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Every horrible sin. Every injustice. If you just took all of the sins from Nazi Germany during World War II and you embodied a person in that, what would you say would be proper punishment to that body? Jesus took it. And all the power of darkness unleashed everything it had and Jesus took every bit of it. And then he got up and said, we're done now. And I want you to realize, do you know what happens when Jesus starts to rise? Matthew starts to bring the word back. The word, behold. So in Matthew 27, 51, he will say, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked, rocks were split. Even people got up out of their graves and walked around. He goes, Wow, did you check that out? Wow. I see why Jesus would say in Revelation 1, 18, I am he who lives, who was dead, And behold, I am alive forevermore. Because the fact that I went down to the grave and came up should make you say, wow, why doesn't it? And then I get to the end of the book and I want you to realize there are so many more beholds to behold in Scripture. Do you know how it ends? Do you know how this book ends? Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Revelation 21.3. In other words, God's going to be dwelling with people forever. Wow! Revelation 21.5. He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. The moment we look and we recognize sin is so absent at this point, it doesn't even exist in our memories, we go, Wow! Revelation 22.7. Behold, I am coming quickly. And God says, that's the thing that should rip you now to, wow. In fact, he says it three times. Just a couple of chapters prior, and then finally in Revelation 22:12, he says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. The best beholds are yet to behold. God dwelling with us forever. God making all things new. And living in that fact, you need to know he's coming. And he's coming quickly. And with that is his reward. And to that I say, wow. Now let me ask you as we pray, where are you at? Are you at that place today where you're letting God actually wow you? Or are you crossing your arms and going, do something unique, different? Is it somehow you feel like you have a right to be his boss? 
As I embrace Jesus, I see my victory over sin and over its guilt. As I take up my cross, I see my victory over this world. And I realize my whole life is a wow. Every breath I get to take is a wow. And I look at this, and the same Matthew who looked and went, wow. Do you see what happened with Judas? And Jesus looking and seeing Judas kiss him and going, you'd betray me like this? It's the same Jesus I get to stare now into his face. One day fall at his feet and say, I'm yours forever. Wow. Now let me ask you, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? His death on the cross for your sins and his resurrection? Are you still trying to bank on other options and start to sort of, if you will, shop your options? Who else volunteered to pay your bill? Who else volunteered without any guilt upon himself? Who else volunteered to take your life and make it his own for the rest of eternity? To embrace you, adopt you as your own? Who else made that promise and proved it on the cross in his resurrection? Only one, the God of wow. And every breath we get to take until we stand before him in his throne is another opportunity for God to give us a beholdable moment. And my prayer is today, God would do that. And if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity here. But if you have, my prayer is for every one of us that God would bring us back to that place where we, I mean, let's face it, we're good at the, the wows that are bad. I mean, I bet if I were to ask you, all right, can you think of a few moments in your life where you looked and it was a horrible moment and you went, wow. You probably could pull those up. It's as if you're sitting on the couch and you're like, those are the things that are readily reachable. Our family has just moved from a much, much larger house to something roughly quarter of its size. And so in the beginning of it all, you're just getting boxes into rooms. But as it's the case, we've been graced at least with a, with a long, I'm not saying a big, but a, at least a long cellar. I mean, Hugo might be okay there for me. I'm pretty much in an army crawl anytime I have to put something in there, but there's a lot of long space. And the reason I say that is, is at first, of course, you're kind of just putting things in, but we've had to, for the sake of, in essence, survival, pull everything out and kind of look and go, okay, now, what do we really need and what do we not? And the things that we don't, that we know we're not going to, listen, please, the things we know that we're not going to use go in the cellar. Now, maybe I might need it someday, so it's accessible, so it's at least kind of kept a little safe. But in the end, it's the stuff that I know I'm not going to need today, because why in the world would anyone in their sane mind have to go back into there every day just to go and get it? Then we have bookshelves and storage counters all over the house. And there are things all over those. Plates and books and cups, and in my case, a whole thing full of teas. They don't call me Pastor T for no reason. Because those are the things we use daily and often, often in that day. Here's my reason for saying that. Is that what if that was your life and that was my life today and we realize the wowable moments, some of them are going to go into the cellar and some of them are going to go on the bookshelf. Which go where? Those painful wow moments, those grievous, begrieving moments where we look and we can still feel the emotion when we see the betrayal, where someone so close to us was intimate with us, and then we realize they're really not who we thought they were. They're really something very opposite. And we're like, wow. Is that on our bookshelf or is that in our cellar? How quick was it for you to access that when I brought that? Some memory that brings that to mind. You know, sometimes it is closer in time, but not always, is it? I mean, it's amazing how quickly I could pull things back 10 years ago that I feel like that about. And I can still feel pain in those. But what about those moments where you knew God did something amazing and your eyes sparkle and you're like, God, wow. And you're on your face because you realize, I am so small and God, you are so big. <coughs> but what about those moments? Are those in the cellar? Or are those up in the bookshelves? Are those up on display? Because throughout the course of your day, you're going to reach for something and you're going to pull one or the other. And when you do, it's going to flavor the rest of your day. And you're either going to walk in hope and expectation and faith or you're going to walk around like a zombie like most of the people out there that don't know the Lord. And you know the enemy wants you like that so the world could look and go, well, they don't have anything. I don't. Well, maybe today, 
Not even maybe. Let's stop maybeing. Let's just do it today. Let's give God permission to rip it out and put things where they belong. So we can start living the life we should as Christians. Well, when people say, tell me about your God, you just reach over and you don't even have to look. You just know whatever you're going to touch here is going to be a wowable moment. That I'm like, let me just tell you about something God's done. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you are the God that is a beholdable God. That, that constantly is creating these moments for us to behold. For us to say, wow. And I recognize today in this room right now, we could be in various states of understanding of you. Various states of experience or years with you. But clearly just being around you for years isn't enough because Judas was around you for years and it clearly wasn't the thing for him. God, I know the real thing is whether or not we're willing to do more than just hang out with you, but really follow you and surrender and seek you. Hand you our lives and let you become the potter and recognize that we're simply clay. But we recognize, Lord that there is a constant battle on that living sacrifice where we and our desires and will are constantly crawling off the altar we rightly belong to just stay on. And I pray first for every person who's made claim to you that has accepted the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross where all this beautiful adventure begins. Pray, Lord, for me and for anyone else who's made that claim that today you bring us back to this place of glorious wow. Where we would behold our God. Because it should be that every time our heart and our mind and our eyes are turned to you, there should be some part of us, if not all of our being, should go, wow. And you've called for us to turn to you and to behold you. Oh God, Make us people who behold you. Give us a wowable spirit that could really be in amazement. Wonder. Marvel at you because you are marvelous and magnificent. Make us people, Lord, with every atom in us that thrives on any form of energy, that, that emotes any form of emotion, God, Put us in this place of wonder with you that that is the thing, Lord, that we abound and grant to others, Lord, that we spill on others. And here in this room, at the sound of this voice, if Jesus really has died for you, and he has, just like the prophets would promise, was buried, and after dying for your and my sins, and was buried just like the prophets promised, rose again on the third day, showing that all of hell, all of darkness, all of the enemy and all of his forces had completely exhausted their attack and had come up defeated. And now this same Jesus demands to be Lord and not just Savior of our lives. And today the Bible says, that if we're willing to confess with our mouth that Jesus really is our Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we'll be saved. And that's the decision you need to make. And if that's you today, right where you're at, I'm going to pray this prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you really are willing to accept this gift, I ask you to give a confident and resounding Amen. What you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. So be it in my life. And here it is. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. As men are sinners, as humans are sinners, I'm a sinner. Because of my sin, I stand guilty before you in my own merit. But you so loved me, you paid for all of my guilt and shame on the cross of your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, who died on that cross that had been promised for over a thousand years so that all of my filth could be punished. So that I myself would not have to take its punishment, even though I rightly deserve it. And I, can, I confess that to you. But just like Scripture promised, He was buried and He rose again on the third day. 
and shows himself as the king of my new life. So I say yes to this gift. Your payment for my sins, your son's resurrection, to be the architect of my reinvention, to be the Lord of my new life. Have me now, reinvent me, make me yours. As I hand myself to you, I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, you've heard our voices, you've heard our, our, our prayers. And I pray now, O Lord, you ignite us to be people who live in that state of beholding our God. In Jesus' name, amen.